Hey everyone, it's Thursday, it's 5 p.m. and you are at the bar. I'm Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum. And I'm Jennifer Braceres with Independent Women's Law Center. Time to grab a cocktail, belly up to your laptop, and join us for the fourth virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. That's right. Today we are talking about the sadly relevant subject of court packing with Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project and our very own Erin Hawley, Senior Fellow with Independent Women's Law Center. Just to tee up this issue a little bit, um, you know, since 1869, the court has consisted of nine justices, eight associates, uh, and one chief justice. Over the past 150 years, Americans have really um, adopted this norm, right, that there are nine Supreme Court justices. Uh, recently, though, as President Biden has established a bipartisan commission, supposedly um, bipartisan commission, to study Supreme Court, what they're calling reform. Um, and among other things, they're examining the size of the court and and the justices' lifetime appointments. Um, so why now, Jennifer? Why is this uh, something we're talking about now? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, calls to expand the court have been around for a very long time, primarily from people who, for one reason or another, don't like certain court rulings. Um, the premise behind expanding the court is really the fundamentally anti-democratic idea that unelected judges are supposed to make law or just rubber stamp laws that conflict with the Constitution. Um, now, as you know, that's not the role of the courts in a democratic society. And for most of our history, both Democrats and Republicans understood that and rejected the idea of court packing as a threat to our separation of powers. Um, in fact, when Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court in the 1930s, Democrats rejected the idea as an attack on our constitutional norms, which, in my view, it, it remains today. Um, but in recent years, we've seen more and more Democrats warm to the idea of court packing, mainly because they're upset that the Republican-controlled Senate refused to confirm Barack Obama's nominee of Merrick Garland to replace um, what, what I know Mike refers, who Mike refers to as the late, great Justice Scalia. Um, you know, as everyone knows how that played out, uh, Majority Leader McConnell did not move that nomination forward. Um, ultimately, we had an election. The people voted. Some huge proportion, maybe Mike will remember the number, but some huge portion of people who voted in that election um, said that they based their vote on, on the Supreme Court. Um, Donald Trump won the election. And ultimately, in January of 2017, he appointed uh, Judge, now Justice Neil Gorsuch, to that seat. And really, ever since then, Democrats have been demanding that we increase the number of justices on the court, essentially to neutralize Gorsuch um, and Trump's subsequent appointees, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett. Um, now, it is true, Donald Trump was fortunate to have three appointments during his presidency. Um, for some reason, the Democrats view this as illegitimate or unfair, um, even though this is precisely how our founders intended it to work. They intended there to be elections and then for the person who was elected to nominate people to the court. Um, the Senate, of course, has a role to play. The Senate can confirm 
the nominee, the Senate can reject the nominee, or the Senate cannot move on the nominee. All of that is within the normal uh, bounds of politics um, and within the rules. Um, but for some reason, the Democrats think that that wasn't fair. And so now they want to expand the court so that they can immediately neutralize President Trump's appointees. Yeah, I really want to underscore that difference between the normal political process, no matter how rancorious or partisan, right? Um, there, Obviously, we had what we might call a norm of politics, whereby, um, you know, it, particularly before uh, Bork, Justice Bork's uh, failure to be confirmed, um, Judge Bork's failure to be confirmed to uh, the Supreme Court, we had this norm of civility and bipartisanship um, in the Senate confirmation process, but that was really an internal body of Senate norm, right? Um, it was something we were used to, whereas this is very different. Breaking this norm is is uh, breaking a norm of independence between uh, the different branches of government. And I, I think it's really important to underscore how different that is. You know, politics, the sphere of politics um, is supposed to stop at the doors of the Supreme Court. The, the confirmation process is supposed to be political. Now, political could mean civil and bipartisan, or it could mean you know, yelling at each other in a deeply partisan process the way that it has turned out to be for the last few decades. But nevertheless, that that confirmation process is supposed to be a political act, whereas the politics are supposed to stop once the justices are actually appointed and sitting on the Supreme Court. They're no longer supposed to be a creature of the other branches of the elected branches. They're supposed to exercise that independence, which is why I think court packing represents such a um, more important violation of a norm than something like how rancorious our, our confirmation process has gotten over the years. But, um, you know, you and I can talk about this for a while, but I think uh, it'll be much better if we bring up our first guest, Mike Davis. Um, Mike Davis is the founder and president of the Article 3 Project. Um, he previously worked for Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley, where he served as a staff leader for the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh and a record number of federal circuit judges. He also previously clerked for Justice Neil M. Gorsuch, both on the Supreme Court Um and then um, previously on the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, where he was previously uh, seated. He grew up in Des Moines uh, and graduated from the University of Iowa and Iowa Law. So, Mike, thank you for, for joining us at the bar and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, let's start with the, the most basic thing. Uh, you heard what Jennifer and I were chatting about, but why is court packing a bad idea? Well, um, you, you guys said this. We've had nine justices on the Supreme Court since 1869. Uh, before 1869, that number used to fluctuate. It fluctuated anywhere between six and 10. But the reason it fluctuated, it was it was because Supreme Court justices used to literally get on their horses and ride around the country. Uh, they rode circuits. And they um, so they uh, had a, a tremendous burden. And so I can you can understand why you would add justices as our country grew because you're putting this tremendous burden on Supreme Court justices to, to ride their horses around the country and hear appeal and ride circuit. And so since uh, since 1869, we've had nine justices. We've had the courts of appeals, the U.S. courts of appeals since 1891, and we have stopped having active Supreme Court justices ride circuit. We don't ride circuit anymore. You'll see retired Supreme Court justices like, uh, like Justice O'Connor used to do this, where, you, where she'd go sit on three judge panels as a retired Supreme Court justice. But there's just no need for more justices right now. They're not writing circuits 
and there's not a uh, an increase in caseload at the Supreme Court. Actually, the caseload is getting smaller. They hear less than 100 cases per year for oral arguments. So there's not a practical reason to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. It's purely about Democrats trying to grab power. It's a power. Let, let me ask you, that, that brings up a question I have about an article that recently appeared. I think it was in Bloomberg Law, um, where the authors suggested that, to your point, that the court doesn't hear that many cases right now. Um, and these authors suggested that they should hear more cases and that that is a reason for adding more justices, that somehow if we got up to the number 15, then they could sit in panels the way the courts of appeals do and hear more cases. Um, what do you think of that? It's, it's just an excuse to pack the court. It's an excuse by Democrats and their left-wing allies to grab power. See, here's the issue. This, uh, so President Trump, his biggest accomplishment as president was to appoint a true constitutionalist majority on the Supreme Court, the first time we've had one in more than 80 years. And so you never heard Democrats talking about court packing when non-constitutionalists ran the court for 80 years. But now that we have a five to four Clarence Thomas court, you start to hear liberals complain about the court. So they want to pack it. They want to change it. And so, and so instead of having a court that's five to four uh, constitutionalists, six justices appointed by Republicans, three appointed by Democrats. Now you see Democrats, now that they have the White House and they have the Senate and they have the House, they have full control of the, of the political branches of the, of the federal government. The only thing that's stopping them, the only check on their power is a five to four constitutional Supreme Court. And so you see this with COVID restrictions. You see these Democrat politicians across America would have us uh, kicked out of our houses of worship based upon no science because of, you know, their uh, their imaginary fears about COVID. And so five justices on the Supreme Court stepped up and said, you can't do this. You can't, you cannot kick people out of churches uh, because of COVID, yet people go on with every other aspect of their life. You can't discriminate against churches. And so that would not have happened if we didn't have a five to four Clarence Thomas court, if we did not have a five to four constitutionalist court. Democrats don't like that there is a check on their power. They want they want full control. And the only thing that's stopping them is this court. So that's why we're hearing about court packing. Uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing up writing circuit, by the way. Um, I love thinking about, for example, Andrew Jackson, who went on to be president. He was a, a judge for a while and he exactly wrote circuit. Like it's hard for us to imagine that judges used to be much like the sheriffs of the old West. They would sort of ride into a town and hear the town's cases and then ride back out. Um, so thank you for that visual image. Um, but but to your to your deeper point, right? That this is really a political move um, to to shift the the sort of dynamics of the court because one side feels that they have lost essentially the political game for the court. Even though I would argue, you know, we dealt with with being on the losing side, as you say, for eighty years. Um, uh, constitutionalists dealt with being on the losing side um, politically of of the the confirmation battle. Um, but but in any case, they've decided that th there's this court is somehow illegitimate because they finally lost that political process that Jennifer and I were talking about. But it turns out that even Justice Ruth G Bader Ginsburg agrees with you, Mike. Right? Um, we have this this video clip uh, of her laying out why she thinks packing the courts are, are a, it's it's a really bad idea. I have heard that there are some people on the Democratic side who would like to increase the number of judges. 
I think that was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to pack the court. His plan was for every justice who stays on the court past the age of 70, the president would have authority to nominate another justice. If that plan had been effective, the court's number would have swelled immediately from 9 to 15, and the president would have six appointments to make. You mentioned before um, the court appearing partisan. Well, if anything would make the court appear partisan, it would be that one side saying, when we're in power, we're going to enlarge the number of judges, so we will have more people who will vote the way we want them to. Um, so obviously there she raises the idea and, and says it's a bad idea, raises the idea of expanding the number of justices or to put in um, limits uh, based on age or any other any other way of, of sort of moving um, folks artificially or early off the court um, on a court with dozens of members potentially because we know that if this happens right it's not going to stop with one round if, if the Democrats pack the court next time Republicans are in power they'll pack the court further um, how, how will that change the court Mike for for the worse well, you, you have Justice Ginsburg, as you just showed the late Justice Ginsburg, saying that it would make it political. You also have Justice Stephen Breyer, another Democrat appointee on the Supreme Court who has recently come out and said that court packing is a bad idea because it would politicize the court. So two, two of the last four Democrat appointed justices on the Supreme Court have made the highly unusual public denouncements of court packing. And the reason is, is because it would politicize the courts. We would turn the judicial branch, the Supreme Court and the judicial branch into another political body. And they, it would just, it would lose legitimacy. People would stop having confidence in our federal courts and we would become a banana republic. It, like you said, it would never end. We would have, uh, we would just keep, keep packing and packing and packing and packing and the Supreme Court would just become a joke. You know, I, I think that size really makes a difference because when you have a court of nine or fewer, um, it allows the justices to know each other on a personal level and to be collegial uh, in a way that, that large bodies like the United States Congress often aren't. And, you know, you saw the friendship of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. Um, you know, for the most part, all of these men and women get along fairly well. And I think that if you were to go beyond nine, even just, you know, looking at it from a practical standpoint, if you had 15 or, or 20 or 25 justices, what you'd start to have are caucuses and coalitions. And the justices would not know each other as personally. Um, these coalitions, they would cut deals and they would look for ways to, to you know, get people over to their side in a way that's not necessarily based on reason, um, that's based more on politicking. And, that is not the way a court is supposed to operate. That is the way a legislature operates. Um, courts are supposed to operate by reason and logic and, and the rule of law. Um, but when you have, when you expand the number of people, I think it inevitably devolves into politicking, which is a problem. 
But yeah, I agree. I mean, we've had, uh, I, when I, I clerked there uh, to help Justice Gorsuch get set up on the Supreme Court, it is a very collegial place. Uh, Ju the late Justice Gin Ginsburg, uh, all of them, they were all very welcoming to Justice Gorsuch and his law clerks when we came in. Justice Ginsburg gave Justice Gorsuch her law clerk manual for for uh, for Justice Gorsuch to use for his for his law clerk manual as a as a, a template for his law clerk manual. Each set and and Aaron can talk about this. Each set of law clerks for each one of the justices has lunch or coffee or tea with each one of the the justices over the course of the year. It's it's very much a family atmosphere. Uh, they may disagree. They may disagree strongly on the law. But it's not a political body. It's it, people get along very well. The law clerks get along. The justices get along. Uh, the justices uh, treat the other law clerks with respect. It's it's a very special place. It's one of the few institutions left in in America in our American system that actually functions and functions properly. And the Democrats, uh, many Democrats who are, who are advocating court court packing, want to destroy that because they. They know that 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 the Supreme Court is the uh, final backstop. It's the it's the one thing that is preventing Democrats from uh, grabbing power, and uh, they, they don't like that. Remember, our Constitution is a loan agreement between the people and our government. In our government, we loan the government specific and enumerated powers, and in return, they promise to protect our liberty. They promise to protect us from mob rule, and. Uh, somehow, in, over the course of the last 80 years, we've flipped it on its head. We, instead of the federal government being a limited branch of government with limited powers, we've flipped it on its head where the federal government has all powers, unless uh, uh, unless the, the Constitution says uh, says that they don't. It's just totally flipped on its head. And when you have constitutionalist judges who are going to start to say that the federal government doesn't have the power to do what the federal government proclaims it has the power to do, I think that terrifies the left, and that's I think that's why you're seeing uh, this court packing, uh, uh, this 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 court packing scheme coming out of the left, out of the demand justices of the world um, uh, since President Trump transformed the Supreme Court into a truly constitutionalist court. Uh, uh, to to engage in, in exactly what you're talking about, Mike, I'd like to bring up Aaron Hawley. Um, Aaron is an expert in constitutional and administrative law, separation of powers, which is so relevant to this discussion, um, as well as religious liberty. She's a former law professor, and she was a clerk to Chief Justice John Roberts. So like you, Mike, she she knows about the collegiality um, behind the scenes at the Supreme Court. Uh, Aaron writes and lectures widely on the Supreme Court, the administrative state, as well as uh, civil justice reform. Welcome, Aaron. Oh, I think they're on mute, Aaron. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for doing Use my at the bar is a diet Dr. Pepper. So, so no excuse. <laughs> there you go. I'm not as good as you. I'm, I'm having a little <laughs> vodka and uh, seltzer water. So perfect summer drink as we get here. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Cheers. So, Aaron, we're going to start. Um, we're going to play this little clip of uh, Joe Biden when he was a senator. Um, talking about this very issue, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. So take a look. President Roosevelt clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate and the United States Congress a proposal to pack the court. It was totally within his right to do that. He violated no law. He was legalistically absolutely correct, but it was a bonehead idea. So what do you think about that, Aaron? I, I assume you agree with them that it was a boneheaded idea. Maybe you don't agree with the whole statement, but what do you make of it? 
Well, I, I think if you study history, um, it certainly proved true uh, that in that instance, uh, it was definitely a boneheaded idea. Um, President Franklin Roosevelt uh, suffered many political defeats. Um, even uh, his own party uh, was not in favor of packing the court uh, for the reasons that you guys have been discussing. Uh, it would transform the Supreme Court into a partisan political institution uh, if we were to pack it with new justices uh, every time a new president and Congress were sworn in. Um, it just really sort of inverts the constitutional design uh, to have a Supreme Court that grows uh, with each new election. Uh, so, so I think he's absolutely right. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and uh, in Article 3, uh, we see uh, that uh, the founders intentionally created the third branch to be different. Uh, Article 1 provides for the election of Congress. Article 2 provides for the election of the president through the Electoral College. Um, and yet, in Article 3, as you all have been discussing, the process is very different. The president appoints, uh, the Senate confirms, but then after that, the judges have lifetime tenure precisely so that they can institute the rule of law, so that they can serve as a check uh, on those elected branches. Sorry, uh, so <laughs> thank you, Erin. No, I wanted to ask you, um, I know you've written about this, but one of the arguments that people make in favor of packing the Supreme Court is that there should be balance. So they say, well, there are too many Republican appointed justices right now. We need to expand the court to bring it back into balance, like, like a political commission, like the Civil Rights Commission on which I served, or some other commissions where there are a certain number of, of Democrats and a certain number of Republican appointees at any one time. I know you've written um, a couple of articles debunking that, but I wonder if you could explain to our audience why that doesn't make sense in this context. Absolutely. Well, I think, Jennifer, the whole idea of balance on the Supreme Court really just gets their job wrong. It gets the idea of what a Supreme Court and an Article III judge is supposed to do wrong. Um, and that is that, um, as Mike was talking about, we have, uh, for the first time in quite a while, uh, a constitutionalist court. And what Mike means by that, I believe, uh, is that we have a court that believes that words matter. Uh, and that the Constitution matters, and that uh, federal judges should interpret the Constitution according to the words that are in the Constitution, according to the history uh, that the Constitution, uh, the history at the time the Constitution was enacted. Um, and when we're looking at a statute, uh, the question should be, what is it that Congress wrote? Uh, we don't want judges who go in, look at a statute and say, you know, I think we should redline it a little bit. Um, I think we should blue pencil it. Uh, and I think that we should uh, change it because times have changed or I just think I know better uh, than, than the elected branches. We know they're sometimes dysfunctional. Uh, we should be able to correct that. Um, and I think that's the idea behind this notion of balance is that we need some Republican judges, we need some Democrat judges. So they sort of come to the, the right policy conclusion together. Uh, but that, that idea, uh, again, is contrary to the idea of a judge who is supposed to interpret the law as written, not as he or she would like to write it or, or think the best policy decision is. Uh, so, so really balance has, has no place on the court. Uh, it's not about balance, but about the rule of law. Erin, I'm glad you said that because I, I think as we've discussed, people have difficulty separating the where politics should 
be involved in this process, right? I.e. that it should be involved in, in the initial confirmation process and the appointment process. We don't want something, we don't want a court that's completely disconnected from the people, right? Uh, there's a reason we want this attenuated connection to small d democratic politics. Um, but as you rightly say, that, that connection and that influence is supposed to stop at the court door. Do you worry that just proposing some of these um, ideas and, and running them through Congress and having the president have a, a commission to discuss what he calls reform. Um, do you worry that that's, that in itself may be enough to essentially politicize the court, to put political pressure on the court? I certainly hope not. And I think our justices are, are committed uh, to doing their level best um, to to rule uh, in a way uh, that's consistent with the rule of law. Um, but but I don't doubt that some of these proposals are initiated in order to put pressure on the Supreme Court. Uh, if we look back at history again and to Franklin Roosevelt's plan, um, there was in the New Deal, uh, he was proposing uh, and Congress was enacting these massive governmental programs and the Supreme Court was striking them down as inconsistent with the Constitution. Uh, then President Roosevelt uh, you know, proposes packing the court. Um, his plan was for every justice, as Mike said, over 70. Uh, he was going to get to add a new justice, which some justices were elderly. He was, was going to get to pack the court. Um, and what happened uh, was that the Supreme Court uh, actually started ruling his way. Uh, the historians call it the switch in time that saved nine. Um, and, and so the, the court wasn't packed, um, but they did start ruling uh, and upholding uh, his legislation. Uh, so I think from that example and from some of the way these proposals are bandled about, uh, there's no doubt that, that it is intended to sort of, um, in a sense, threaten or, or at least you know, tell the court, hey, if, if you don't pay attention, uh, we're just going to add new justices who will rule the way that we want you to. So, Mike, you worked on the Hill. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the politics of this. Biden said in the clip that we just played um, that he thinks or thought pack, court packing was a bonehead idea. So why did he establish the commission? And do you think he's honestly changed his mind? Um, and related to that, you think about this piece in your answer, um, some members of the House of Representatives and the Senate are angry with Biden for establishing the commission because they think that this is his way of punting. So they've introduced their own legislation to move forward with court packing without study. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of comment on, on you know, that political side of it. I almost wish that the Republicans in the House of Representatives would get a discharge petition. Maybe they can get all 215 Republicans or whatever it is and maybe get like the squad to join a dis discharge petition so we can get 218 um, people to sign this discharge dis discharge petition and force the House Democrats to vote on court packing. And then maybe we can do an amendment in the Senate and force Senate Democrats to vote on court packing. Because I I'll tell you what, it's not a winning issue for Democrats. It's a horrible political issue for them. We saw this even in the last election uh, where uh, we uh, Republicans I have to be careful. I, I can't be partisan on here as, as an Article Three project rep representative. But Republicans in the Senate kept a lot of seats that Republicans should have lost, and a big driving reason for that is court packing. So there were uh, court packing was certainly a benefit re uh, Republicans Senate incumbents this last election. Think about this: um, Democrats 
uh, ran on the Supreme Court in 2016, and President Trump won an upset victory over Hillary Clinton uh, in big part over the Supreme Court vacancy in 2018. Uh, the uh, Democrats ran on uh, their Me Too allegations against uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and we ended up uh, uh, sending four Democrat incumbents packing. They lost re-election over that issue. And again, like I just said, in 2020, there were a lot of Republicans who held on to their seats because of court packing and the assault on judicial independence. I think it is a hugely stupid political issue uh, for Democrats to be pushing this, and so I hope that they do it. You might call it boneheaded. Um, (laughs) You know, it's funny to me that they think that they can get away with this politically, given the fact that obviously when FDR tried this, he earned a huge rebuke, even from his own party. It was wildly unpopular. And, and, And this is a president who was ultimately went on to be elected four times, right? He was massively more popular uh, than Joe Biden is now. Um, And yet this particular plank of his agenda um, was extremely unpopular. In a subsequent election, Democrats lost six Senate seats, 71 House seats, a dozen governorships. This was this was really the one I wish that the country had rebuked FDR for more. But this was really um, a, a sort of solitary moment of rebuke for a wildly popular president. Um, actually, let, let's let's bring up this clip of Trey Gowdy uh, referencing, I think, uh, some of what you said, Mike, about how this could actually be a, a benefit for Republicans. Brett, this is a gift from God. That is the only way to describe it. It has no chance ever of becoming law with the current Congress, but it will be used to bludgeon Democrat candidates in 2022, which is why you saw that motley group of only four that can't even wait for Biden's commission. So Republicans rejoice that Jerry Nadler is handling strategy for 2022. You're guaranteed to retake the House and the Senate. So I actually worry about moving the Overton window on this issue, even though it might be sort of a short-term boon to the party. I, 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 do you guys worry that um, even though it might be a, a, a sort of short-term, whatever political victory, right, as you say, Mike, to get all these folks to vote on it, um, on an unpopular proposal, you know, don't you worry about shifting the Overton window? Isn't this just going to become, as everything has moved from the fringes of the Democratic Party into the mainstream of the Democratic Party, and by the next election, we'll be, you know, debating this? Aaron, go ahead. You know, um, I, I, I hope not. And I'd be curious as to what Mike thinks on this. Um, but there really is no principled reason uh, to pack the court, that there's none. Uh, the court is not overworked. It actually is deciding fewer cases today uh, with more help than at almost any time in its history. If you look back even as recently as 1980, the Supreme Court was deciding about 150 cases. Um, currently, it has maybe 60 or 70 uh, cases that it decides per year. Uh, sometimes you see statistics that like, the court handles 10,000 cases a year. Um, but that's really um, misleading because most of those are cert petitions and the vast majority of those cert petitions have zero chance that the Supreme Court is ever going to hear that case. So the court is not overworked. Um, as uh, Mike ably explained, that there's no circuit writing. Uh, we don't have Chief Justice Marshall who's getting thrown off his horse anymore. I think it was a carriage. I um, mean, he actually broke his collarbone. Um, like that, that just doesn't happen today. So that there's no reason. But it would be really entertaining to see the Supreme <laughs> Court justices today ride out on horses. Like I would yes. pay yes. for that. 
continue, please. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg and Justice uh, Scalia, of course, did write an elephant. Um, that there's the, that, that famous picture. Um, but but they're not writing circuit. They're not overworked. There's just no principled reason uh, in order to pack the court. So my secret hope. Uh, is that the, this commission is just a place uh, where this court packing proposal can go to die um, because there's no reason uh, to recommend it. Um, I, I, I might be wrong on that. Um, the, the commission may be overwhelmed um, with partisans who really want to see the court change course and are willing to uh, add justices to do so. Um, but I'm hoping uh, that this uh, Supreme Court commission actually just buries uh, this proposal. What do you think, Mike? So here's the deal. If we didn't have senators, uh, Democrat senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema come out and say that they're not going to nuke the legislative filibuster, the Democrats would absolutely have nuked the, the legislative filibuster that we've had since the 1830s, meaning they would lower the vote threshold from a supermajority requirement to a mere majority requirement. They would lower it from 60 to 50 votes plus Kamala Harris breaking the tie. They absolutely would pack the Supreme Court. They absolutely would add new states, D.C., Puerto Rico. Who knows? We have five territories. Who knows where it would end? They would add two new senators for each state. They absolutely would pa uh, pass H.R. 1, which is a federal takeover our, over, over our elections to ensure that Republicans never win key elections again. And there goes our First Amendment right to speak, our First Amendment right to associate, our First Amendment right to worship, our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, our rights would go out the window if Democrats nuke the legislative filibuster and pack the Supreme Court. So it is it is a very dangerous revolutionary idea. Thankfully, like I said, we have adults, two adults left in, uh, in the Democrat uh, party in the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Otherwise, we would be we would be having a much different discussion right now. But Mike, why, why do you think that Biden set up this commission? Is he punting? Does he want to pack the court or does, does he still believe it's a bonehead idea? I mean, I, I'm sort of with Inez on this. I think uh, that he set up the commission to, to change the terms of the debate, um, to make it more palatable down the road, not necessarily to do it now. And frankly, I worry that the whole commission is actually sort of a sideshow um, that that you know, even though Biden may have no intention of expanding the court now, um, that what he'll do is recommend maybe term limits, use the commission to recommend term limits for Supreme Court justices, or just distract the public with this whole Supreme Court debate, and then quietly expand and pack the lower courts without any objection from the public. Um, you know. I, I want to actually ask you about both of those, about the, both of those things, term limits for justices and um, packing the lower courts. But let's start with the term limits question. Yeah. Um, this has actually received some degree of support from conservatives and libertarians. Here's a clip of our friend Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute talking about this issue. I want to offer two cheers for term limits. In other words, I'm not a full-throated, you know, term limits are the greatest thing since sliced bread and would fix everything that anyone thinks is wrong with the Supreme Court or America. Um, but I do think it would be helpful and healthy. Um, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg prompted once again a wave of discussion about the idea of limiting the term of Supreme Court justices. If only RBG had been forced to retire years ago, the theory goes, 
the country would not have faced a bitter confirmation fight in the midst of an already tumultuous election season. The hope which uh, first gained traction in modern times after Robert Bork's failed nomination in 1987 is that by more regularly replacing longtime justices with newer ones, adding predictability to when those switches occur, the nomination process would become less divisive and disruptive. I think that's largely right. Term limits could help restore confidence in the confirmation process and eliminate the morbid health watches we now have as justices age. So Aaron, let's start with your reaction to Ilya's two cheers for term limits. Um, do you have three cheers, two cheers, no cheers? Um, maybe one cheer. Um, it's certainly absolutely 100% better than packing the court. Um, so, so there's no question that term limits is a better proposal uh, than packing the court, uh, because packing the court by definition uh, would give this president the ability to appoint um, the current proposal floating around is 13 justices. So nearly 50% more justices uh, in a single term by a single president. Uh, if you had term limits instead, uh, presumably those would be staggered uh, based on the ages of the justices. Uh, so you would not have as much potential uh, for the court to uh, go through radical changes uh, in order to just change the way it rules. So it's much better than court packing. Um, on the other hand, uh, it would require a constitutional amendment. Uh, so as we've talked about, the framers clearly envisioned that the court uh, would be insulated from politics uh, once the justices were confirmed. Uh, and the reason being uh, so that they would be able to follow the rule of law, not be swayed by politics or political pressure. Uh, and that is why they are given lifetime tenure uh, under Article 3. Uh, if we were to change this, it would require a constitutional amendment. Um, and I would want to make sure that those term limits were long enough uh, that the original Article Three purpose of allowing justices to be insulated uh, would still apply. So those term limits would need to be pretty long. So there are some people who say that a constitutional amendment isn't required so long as they were to remain on the bench and these judges would be sent back to the circuit courts. I don't happen to agree with that. What do you think, Mike? That must be Brian Fallon at Demand Justice who came up with <laughs> this creative, the, the non-lawyer has come up with this creative legal arguments, and it just happened to coincide with when President Trump transformed the Supreme Court to the first true constitutional Supreme Court in 80 years. So it's a, it's amazing that these same Democrat operatives have not called for uh, packing the Supreme Court in term limits when it were when it was Democrats who controlled, or the leftists who controlled the Supreme Court for so long when, when Democrats um, uh, controlled the court. So this is all politics. Lifetime tenure, as Aaron said, is in the Constitution. Uh, it's there for a reason. We have lifetime tenure and pay protection so judges can focus on their job and not worry about their next job. Uh, their sole job is to find the law and apply it, to interpret the law as written, and they should not have to worry about the politics. That's, again, why we give them lifetime tenure and pay protection. And the system has worked out uh, very well. It's unfortunate that the Democrats lost a seat with uh, Justice Ginsburg's passing, but it, you know that, that's that's happened in our history before. Uh, the, you know, it's the the composition of the court changes over time, and um, you know that's just that's just the way it works. And I think the better argument for people who want to depoliticize the Supreme Court is to get judges out of the, the politics business, get judges out of the legislation business. Uh, the ju judges have a very critical 
Uh, it's a very modest but very critical role, and it's to interpret the law. And that's all they need to do. And if they stay out of the politics and uh, they stay out of the policy and they stay out of the legislation, they don't need to worry about any of this stuff. Just follow the law. And think about it this way. If you're a litigant going before a judge and, that, and, and you don't think you're getting a fair hearing because that judge has a constituency other than the law or that judge has made a commitment to Planned Parenthood or some other outside group, uh, uh, before their confirmation, I mean, that's just, that's not the rule of law. That's a banana republic. We need judges to follow the law. And, and Aaron and I have both talked about constitutionalist judges intentionally. We don't want liberal judicial activists and we don't want conservative judicial activists. If the law is liberal, it's going to be a liberal result. If the law is conservative, it's going to be a conservative result. It's the, our elected officials, Aaron's husband's one of them in the Senate, it's our elected officials job to make the law. And if we don't like it, we can throw them out of office. Uh, you can't throw judges out if you don't like the law. Yeah. And, and, and the reason you can tell, or one of the many reasons you can tell this is not a good faith effort is, of course, if we were really talking about sort of apolitical reform of the Supreme Court or doing um, something that would actually help the caseload, uh, we would be talking about how big the Ninth Circuit is and how people in, you know, widely <laughs> far-flung states have to essentially play second fiddle to California um, with regard to that circuit. But I do want to get both of your views on the other issue that Jennifer raised, which is twofold and then added something to it. One, um, the expansion of the lower courts, right? So um, I'm with Jennifer. I'm worried that even though this won't happen, I, I said I'm worried about the Overton window, I'm worried about the influence on the Supreme Court, but it seems like the consensus is this is unlikely to happen. It may even be a boon politically for um, Republicans in Congress just because it's so unpopular. But is this just a, a, a cover, um, kind of putting the, the least popular idea out there into the ether to sort of normalize it, get all those nice Atlantic and New York Times pieces on it, um, when quietly what they'll really do is something that the average American is not paying attention to, which is the expansion of the lower federal courts. And I just want to add one more wrinkle to that before I get both of your opinions on this. Um, there's also apparently in, in um, HR1, there is a proposal to, I, I guess uh, the Wall Street Journal called it court picking instead of court packing to route all First Amendment cases through the D.C. circuit rather than in their respective geographical circuits, either the appeal circuits or the lower federal courts. So, um, Aaron, if you could speak to any one of those questions that you would like, either the uh, the expansion and the, the quote unquote packing of the lower federal courts and why that could be an issue that flies under the radar, or this idea of just routing more and more stuff through a particular court in D.C., um, even though there's no reason like there might be for administrative law um, to route all that stuff through just the single D.C. circuit. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll start with the latter one first, um, and then might take the lower courts. But it, um, it to me, it's just it's it's crazy uh, to this idea that you might court pick, especially for the the idea is for First Amendment cases. So it's absolutely true that if we're talking about patent law, or if we're talking about veterans benefits, if we are talking about um, certain claims for money against the United States then those cases go to the federal circuit, sort of a specialized court for dealing with those types of things like patents. 
However, if we're talking about something that's sort of ubiquitous under the Constitution, like the First Amendment, um, it certainly seems to be wiser policy to have all of the courts of appeals weighing in. Uh, that way you can get the benefit from different judges, get their different views uh, before the case goes up to the Supreme Court or the issue goes up to the Supreme Court. Uh, so I think it's a very bad idea to think about picking a particular circuit, uh, presumably a favorable circuit, uh, for, for certain issues uh, when certain parties uh, are in power. I would say the reason the Democrats are pushing this, let's be, let's let's just play raw political politics here. They were in 2013, Democrats nuked the filibuster to pack the, or to stack the DC circuit with the Obama appointed liberals. So Democrats control the DC circuit. And so that's why Democrats now wants all of these first amendment challenges by Christians and conservatives to go through the DC circuit where they're gonna get kicked out of court, right? And so think about it this way. Think about the political firestorm and the rightful political firestorm. If Democrats said that we're gonna have civil rights cases uh, around the country for you know discrimination against uh, you know African-Americans have to go through a certain court. They couldn't go through their courts back home. They couldn't go through the eighth circuit in my home state of Iowa. They, they had to spend the money and get the lawyers to go out to Washington DC to, to litigate their claims. There would be rightful outrage. So why should we put Christians at a worse position than other Americans when it comes to their first amendment rights? And that's, that's what they're trying to do there by court picking. And the reason you're hearing this is because President Trump, not only did he transform the Supreme Court to the five to four Clarence Thomas Court, he transformed the lower courts. We have 13 circuits around the country that divide up the, the work, mostly by region, 11 by region, actually 12 by region, and one by the patents and, and other issues that Aaron was talking about. So we have these courts around the country. When President Trump took office, for example, on the Ninth Circuit, 29 seat, once out of whack, Ninth Circuit, there were 11 more Democrat appointed judges than Republicans. That got down to just three. So Conservatives are actually starting to get a fair shake in the Ninth Circuit, and President Trump flipped the second, third, and Eleventh Circuit from majority Democrat appointed to majority Republican appointed. So we're starting to see a majority of the circuits around the country that actually have constitutionalist judges who are going to follow the law instead of being left-wing judicial activists, and the Democrats don't like that. And so that's why you're hearing these calls to court pick so they can send people to liberal judges in D.C. and to pack the lower court so they can undo the great work that President Trump, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, my former boss, Chuck Grassley, the former Judiciary Committee Chairman, and then Lindsey Graham, the subsequent uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman. That's why you're hearing about packing the lower courts. It's purely about politics and power. Yeah, um, it is, but they have on their side the Judicial Conference of the United States, which in March recommended adding 79 new judgeships, ostensibly to reduce judicial workload and improve the administration of justice. 79 judgeships is a lot of judgeships. Um, you know, how, how do you argue against that when all of the oxygen in the room is being sucked over here to talk about the Supreme Court and reform of the Supreme Court and the commission um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, when you have the, you know, a supposedly neutral body like the Judicial Conference recommending, you know, saying we need this in order to, to process cases faster. How do you explain to the public and, and make them care about this as equally as important? I would just say, look at the numbers. When I was the chief counsel for nominations to then Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, 
for President Trump's first two years in office, I was responsible for oversight over the federal judiciary. And the, the judicial conference is always asking for, just like any other government agency, they're always asking for more money, more resources. So that's not surprising. I have less of a problem with new district court judges, although I don't, I, I don't even know if those are even necessary. It's the circuit courts that are completely unnecessary. Just a See, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and disagree with you there because okay. the district court judges are where most cases are heard. And that also becomes our bench, our bench for appointing appellate court judges, our bench for appointing Supreme Court justices, right? And so um, I think we don't want to be putting judicial activists into those roles, which is why they want to add these seats so they can put judicial activists even into the district court's uh, slots that, that they're then grooming. You know, no, I, I don't think that we need to add additional seats and, and maybe the handful of districts that we can probably count on one hand where we, where we may need to consider adding, adding new seats. You know, we can fix that by having visiting judges. You can have federal circuit judges, the, the judges on the federal courts of appeals who certainly are not overworked, go sit by designation on these district courts. You can have uh, district judges that are in, di in districts where they're just not busy, go take these cases. They can go sit by designation. They can go visit right. these. And districts. a lot of them do. A lot yeah, of them you do. Can, you can go visit these districts and help with the caseload and get the caseload down. Now, there might be, you know, one, two, three, four, maybe five districts where they're truly overworked and we can look at those. But the problem is, is that once you open the Pandora's box, once you say, okay, uh, senators, members of the House, we're gonna start adding districts, every senator who gets to hand select these district court judges wants to add wants to add judges. This is why my former boss, Chuck Grassley, doesn't wanna do this because it becomes a spending spree. You open up the Pandora's box and all of a sudden you have you have more judges than you have, defend than you have defendants in federal court. You just, right. We just don't need them. Well, the one person who seems to sort of have a handle on this up on the hill is Daryl Issa, who at least says, you know, if you're going to do this, you have to stagger it. If you're going to add 80 new judges, you have to stagger them a couple of years over the course of a decade or so, because you can't allow one president and one party to appoint 80, 80 new judges. Where were the Democrats when the same judicial conference made these recommendations to add judges during when President Trump ran the White House and Republicans had the Senate? crickets out of the Democrats. Now all of a sudden there's this urgent need. It's bogus. It's a bogus political argument. Um, we're coming to the end of our broadcast here. So I just want to wrap it up with taking it back out to the big picture. You know, judicial independence and the rule of law is, is not a you know, universal part of the human experience, right? Um, we've certainly had and, and continue to have across the world various governments that are more governments of men than governments of law, right? Um, and judicial, lack of judicial independence has been a huge part of that. I'm thinking even, um, you know, in Poland, there's huge political debates over how to restructure the judiciary because their constitution, although based partially on ours, partially on some other constitutions um, where they had to rewrite it after communism, didn't really provide for various um, sort of issues within the judiciary that would arise if certain political conflicts came to be. Whereas we've had, you know, well over 200 years to work out some of these norms so that even if things 
even things that are not explicitly written out in the Constitution, we've sort of confronted them one at a time. I'm thinking here, for example, of judicial impeachment, which was much more um, an, a live issue in, in the founding of the Republic and then sort of died as people realized, oh, wait, this is going to be super, super political and we don't really want to use this tool. Um, you know, why don't both of you, uh, starting with Mike and then go to Aaron um, to close us out, you know, why is this issue so important? This issue, not just of court packing, but of judicial independence, of, of the independent branch that deals with the law and the rule of law that is at least attenuated from our day-to-day -day politics. You know, what do we lose if we lose that? So another one of my former bosses, Justice Gorsuch, talks about this in his book, A Republic If You Can Keep It. So there's, I'm plugging his book. So North Korea has the most wonderful constitution on the planet. You have a, you have a right to happiness in North Korea. It is, uh, it is a magical place on paper. Not just the pursuit. You're right. You're, you have a right to happiness. You have the right to happiness. It's not like our Declaration of Independence uh, that, you know, the pursuit of happiness, um, but it's the, the right to happiness in North Korea. And it, like I said, on paper, North Korea is awesome until you realize that they don't have a rule of law. They do not have an independent judiciary. They do, they do not have the separation of powers. So these rights are meaningless. These rights go away if they're politically uh, interfering with the, the ruling class, that the rights go away. And that's what's going to happen in America if we lose our independent federal judiciary, if we lose uh, independent judges, if we pack the Supreme Court, if we have term limits, if we have impeachment, if we have jurisdiction stripping, these radical assaults on judicial independence are going to affect each and every one of our, our rights. We saw this, like I said, with COVID. Churches, mosques, uh, synagogues, houses of worship, Aaron knows about this very well, these houses of worship are closed down with arbitrary COVID uh, fiats by these politicians who uh, are not following the science the only thing that had them reopened are five justices on the Supreme Court, five constitutional justices on the Supreme Court who understand the importance of the rule of law and independent judiciary. Absolutely. I think we have someone in the background who's protesting court packing. That um, must be at your house. <laughs> That's because Erin is superwoman and she is juggling mom duties and talking about administrative law, the Supreme Court, the future of our republic. Go on, Erin. So yes, Abigail hates core packing. Um, and, and I think she's very correct. And, and as Mike was saying, um, it really is assault, an assault on the entire uh, separation of powers that the founders envisioned. Um, and if you think about it, uh, the Bill of Rights actually were added later in time. Uh, and the reason this was so is because the founders were convinced that these checks and balances that are laid out in the Constitution would be sufficient to protect the rights of the American people. And this is because of judicial independence. Uh, the founders believed that the judiciary would be a check against um, sort of majority uh, excesses, majority rules for their trampling on others' rights. Uh, and the COVID cases are a really great example of this. Uh, to quote Mike's former boss, Justice Gorsuch, uh, you know, it is, it is not consistent with the Constitution when you have casinos that are open in Las Vegas, uh, but churches remain closed. Uh, and without the Supreme Court, uh, without five justices, uh, as Mike said, that case actually lost the first one around. Uh, the the uh, churches were required to remain closed uh, while casinos were open. Uh, there was a dissent by Justice Gorsuch. Uh, and then later, after the appointment 
of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, then the Supreme Court switched its view on that and, and actually held uh, that governments have to be neutral. Uh, if the government is going to close things because of COVID, then it can't treat religious bodies, churches and synagogues and the like worse. Uh, and without judicial independence, we don't get that. We have uh, governments that can trample on the rights of Americans. Couldn't have said it better ourselves. Um, thank you both, Mike, Aaron, for joining us at the bar. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners out there. Uh, thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of At the Bar, where we discuss the intersection of the law, culture, and politics. Uh, this is a product of the Independent Women's Forum. You can visit all of our stuff at IWF.org. And then, Jennifer, if you could talk a little bit about the Law Center before we close it out. Yeah, Erin uh, and I work together in the Law Center. You can find our stuff also on the IWF website. And everybody should also go to Mike's website. Uh, what, it's a3p.org? Article3project.org. Article3project.org. Article you can learn more about all of these issues there and also on Independent Women's Voice, IWV.org. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. 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 I finished mine. I'm done. <laughs> Enjoy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>